welcome to the International Bus Podcast brought to you by WorldBee. I'm your co-host Tanya Falkner and this episode is a recording of a panel discussion about financial translation, where we talked about processes, technologies like neural machine translation, challenges and more. Stay tuned to learn from three industry experts. Okay, and we're live. Uh, hello and welcome to this experts panel about financial translation. This panel is brought to you by WordBee and it's hosted by my colleague Robert Rogi and myself, Tanya Falkner. And in the next 60 minutes, we'll discover what leading financial localization organizations are doing to improve their processes, methods and technologies. And we also expect to cover subjects such as neural machine translation, workflows, roles, responsibilities and more. For our listeners, um, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them in the chat box, which should be on the right-hand side of your screen, and we will try to answer them uh, as we go, um, but at the latest at the end of the panel. Cool. Um, so we're super excited to welcome our three experts here today. Um, so let's go ahead and introduce them. We have Olivier Debouni uh, with Lingua Custodia, Claudia Del Castillo with uh, Labrador Translations, and uh, James DeVoge. Um, who's a, a finance uh, financial translator. Um, cool, so we'd like to take a moment, let you guys introduce yourselves because that's usually usually easier. So why, why don't you each take a moment and uh, introduce yourself and, and what you work on and uh, anybody, uh, you can start Claudia. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I'm Claudia. Um, I started working in translation in 2002. I studied in the Paris ASIT, you know that. I've worked in almost all the all the stages of the translation production. I was first terminologist and then project manager and a few years ago I was in charge of the quality and the recruitment of translators in Labrador translations. Um, so that's about it. And also can you just mention what you're doing right now? Well, right now I am in uh, in the group, the in the Labrador group. I'm operations manager, so I have the responsibility for Labrador translations and also for our publishing company, which is called Labrador Information Design. Thanks. Cool. Uh, maybe James. Okay. Uh, I'm James Devoge. I'm a. I've been a, working in financial translation since 2009. When I came to France in 2007, I started my translation studies and started my business after I finished my studies in 2011. I went to Ezit in Paris as well, like Valdia, and uh, I work from French to English. And also work from Spanish to English and Portuguese to English as my passive languages. And I've been working in proofreading and um, translation of financial documents as well as legal documents, uh, court decisions for the Constitutionnel and, and things of that type. And but I mostly concentrate on stock market translations and reg registered information. So, and I work in the Paris region. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And, and Olivier. My turn. Thank you. Hello, my name is Olivier. I'm the CEO and founder of uh, Lingua Custodia. We're a company who applies machine learning to financial translation. So that means we are specialized in the creation of machine translation engines, not only for the financial sector, but for specific type of documents uh, within the financial domain per lexical type. I am myself a former finance professional, so I, I'm not, I don't have any degree in translation, fortunately, but uh, I, uh, so I, I've worked in the, in the asset management industry for 18 years in different countries. 
and I'm now based, uh, or I, I share my time between uh, France and Luxembourg uh, on the development of uh, the company. So that's, that's for me. Perfect. Well, it's great to have you all on the panel today. Thanks for taking the time. Before we get into more detail about process and methodologies, uh, we thought, you know, since we are starting a new decade, we wanted to talk with you about the state of localization in the financial industry um, and how it is right now compared to, let's say, three or five years ago. What has changed in terms of, you know, your processes, technology, even within your companies, if you've been with them for, for that long? So I'm, I'm happy to start on, on, on that one uh, because I, uh, I discovered, I've launched the company uh, by the end of 2011, but we've been on the market only since uh, the beginning of 2015, the end of 2014, early 2015. So I've seen, I've discovered the translation industry something like seven or eight years ago. And what I could say, or what I have seen is when I started to go to translation event back in 2012, and I was saying, well, I have this idea, I would like to create a, a company which is going to create machine translation engines. Basically, I was welcome with tomatoes and uh, was fearing for my life uh, in those type of events, even if I was going there very naively, not understanding why was it so scary, you know, when you're translating a on prospectus, uh, you know, it's not high literature. Uh, it's really something which is quite you know, very technical and very hard to translate. And personally, I would be happy to have technical help uh, to do this. So that was a few years ago. And what I see now is that there seems to be much more kind of um, engagement and understanding for this new technology, which was there before. So I feel now the people who did not want to talk with us before, now they're starting to come to us spontaneously to engage machine translation in the overall translation process. So this is kind of a, an evolution that I have seen on my side uh, from an kind of outsider. Have you seen this as well, James and Claudia? Well, I, I would say that the financial domain is very practical for all kinds of automatizations because everybody sees it as a very technical matter and people think that they can, it's very word to word, which is necessary for, for the machi machine translation, but also for the CAT uh, tools to work correctly. So I would say that financial domain started very early with CAT tools and they are starting early earlier than other translation domains uh, with machine translation. I think that other technical matters are also very um, keen of these kind of advances because they have huge volumes that have to be translated in very short periods and with contents that are very similar from one year to another. So I think all of those aspects make uh, the financial domain very keen to adopt uh, new techniques. However, it's I think it's a bit reducing to think that financial translation is only technical. Uh, maybe James could tell us more about the subtleties and nuances of the of the financial translation. Uh, I think you definitely have a point. I think that uh, new technologies are actually having a role in this because I'm one thing I didn't mention is I'm actually teaching this year at EZIT, uh, and I've been speaking with translators that are in training right now and finding out what they're being taught now as opposed to when I was there back in 2008, 2009, all the way to 2011. And machine translation is actually being integrated into their studies so that they understand what it is, what the technology is behind it, and the role that it plays 
in translation. And the school that I went to actually focuses on editorial and financial, economic and legal translation. So these sorts of translations are, are important to them, but they also focus a lot on the creative element and writing text that actually looks natural and doesn't seem like translation when it comes out. So the there's they want to integrate the new technologies, but they also want to continue with that human element of having the training that you need to provide the complex language that makes it sound natural and makes things flow. So so uh, okay, so we should probably continue with the uh, with the state of the finance uh, industry in terms of localization. Um, do we have any other other comments about ponderous comments about the general state of the industry? Well, we have a lot of of changes that will come from the new ESF rules in Europe, and I think that the fact that now all this uh, that yeah, the public publishing of the of this document across Europe will require a lot of translation, and so it, that has to be a, a good opportunity for everybody. But it also will need like uh, a lot of talents. Uh, it's very difficult to find translators that are both fast, precise. I mean, yeah, like they know what they are talking about because. Finance is a very tricky domain to translate. And so we are going to be yeah, lacking of resources of qualified translators, I think. Before we talk about the translator roles, can you just briefly specify for our listeners who maybe not know about the ISF roles, um, what those are, what the changes are going to be? Well, I'm not an expert in regulamentation, but uh, in any case, the fact is that we have uh, a document that has to be published by every company that is um, that sells shares in the market. The and listed so, companies. Yeah, listed companies. Yeah. So all listed companies have to publish this document that is now uh, that has to have a specific content and now has to be published in several languages. Every every country has to publish it in in its own language. So companies that are present in several in several countries will need to publish the the results in several uh, languages too. Uh, they will also be needing to tag some of those contents uh, in a format that is called XBRL. Uh, that comes next year, not this year. Um, so they will be asking the, the companies to have some of their data tagged in this particular uh, format. Uh, I think that will be interesting for companies like WordBee to be able to use that format. Those are the points that are important for the translation industry, I think. I think one great feature of the financial financial translation, and but it, it is attached to financial translation. Claudia talked about the corporate finance, but in investment finance, you also have on a regular basis all the regulators who are reviewing the rules and who are changing what needs to be published in what languages. You know, every two or three years, you need to republish and retranslate in all languages all those very technical texts, which uh, you know, for the uh, on the translation for the translation industry is great very interesting as a, as a book of business but all in all what we've seen as a last trend is that the financial industry has to be more and more transparent for their clients particularly since the financial crisis they need to be able to communicate in a clear manner to their clients so that the clients understand what they invest in and uh, so that's a lot of opportunities for the financial industry and also the investment world is broader uh, now you know uh, everyone would like to 
know more about small companies in China, for example, to know if they should invest in that. So you need to also understand what you're going to invest in, including in uh, small companies who are publishing only in local languages everywhere in the world. So um, this is uh, this is a growing, the, the needs are really growing in terms of financial translation. And that's what we see. And I think Claudia had a very good point as well. When, you know, James is here with us, there are not many James, uh, i.e. Uh, translation in the financial domain, a simple sentence uh, such as, you know, the SNB decided to de-peg last week. Well, you know, if, you're, if you don't know what the SNB is, if you don't know that there's a peg between the Swiss franc and euros, well, good luck to translate that sentence. And that, you know, there is typically a shortage of resources to do this. And that's where, you know, uh, that's how we based our business model initially. We thought, well, there's a problem. There's not going to be enough people in order to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So we need to bring technology in order to put the two together in order to be able to cover the increase in volume and make sure we can deliver on all that. don't know, James, what, what do you think? Do you see? I, I don't know exactly how many um, people are really uh, specialized as a translators in the financial domain, but, you know, from our own experience and our own network, um, I can see that, you know, there are not that many. Well, as an Anglophone in France, I find that we do tend to be a relatively small community. I actually, among my colleagues, uh, only know one other especially a person who specializes in financial translation and legal translation uh, that is an Anglophone here in France. Uh, I know there are others, but as far as colleagues that I work with on a regular basis, I don't know that many. A lot of English speakers don't necessarily want to work in finance because they have some preconceived notions about it. They find it difficult or they're just not interested in it. They want something that they consider, I would say, quote unquote, more creative, you know, more literary, those kinds of things. But uh, I've always found finance very accessible, the type of language that I was using to when I was living in the United States. So I think that um, with these tools that we have, this might actually open up translation to more people who are looking to expand and work in the domain because it's the finance is accessible. You just have to take the time to learn to understand it. And having these new tools on, on the market are probably going to help us kind of open up and take on new domains without feeling too scared about it. Well, there's, there's also a lot of domains inside finance, as exactly. Olivia was, say, was saying. I mean, stock markets and accounting is not the same domain. Exactly. Even if they are both in, in, in finance, in what we call financial translation, of course. And a very good translator in one of those domains can be very bad in others. I think for Anglophones, it's easier to find, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of work but right. in other languages, it's going to be really difficult to find real experts that can actually translate. I, I tested hundreds of translators, hundreds, really hundreds. And yeah, when they say that they are specialized in that domain, but when it comes to the test, you realize that they don't actually are that specialized or they are not specialized in the domain that you need. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. It's like every time we do something at Wordbee about financial translations and we talk to anybody, at some point in time, they're raising this big uh, white flag or red flag. I'm not sure what color the flag is. And they're like, okay, we don't have enough <laughs> translators over here. If anyone is listening out there. Okay, cool. Well, and James, of course, you're, you're at the university trying to pump out new translators too. Well, there's not a whole bunch of Anglophones that I'm teaching Anglophones. So we have, mm. I had a total of eight students last semester and I have four this semester. So mm. it's not like there's a huge community of them that are going to be graduating this year. So well, <laughs> there's a big lack of Francophone translators also. I, ah. I think it's 
even more difficult to find French speakers than than English speakers that work in finance. Uh huh. And you, if you add to this the, the general lack of knowledge in France about the financial world, you know, people <laughs> don't know what a stock is in France. If you ask the, someone in the street, they won't know that. Whereas in the UK or in the US, people would know that. So mm -hmm. there's a lack of general culture as well in the financial domain in France on that, which adds to the problem. Uh -huh. So do you think that the trend uh, will, because I, I think the finance industry is kind of famous for having a lot of um, in-house translators who are not actually translators. Um, but they have other jobs, but then sometimes they translate something, right? Yeah, I was thinking that we, we were talking about different domains inside the financial translation, but also every company has their own language. So even though there are rules and norms and every kind of uh, efforts to make things like more comparable, every company has their choices and their words that they want to use, the words that they do not want to use. So you have to really adapt every translation you cannot just like say well this is for the bank whatever bank it is and and this is for another bank the same thing will work it won't because every company has their own language uh, in terms of terminology but also in terms of uh, phraseology and everything so they really have different styles so i'm, I'm not surprised that many companies prefer to have in-house translators because they can like model them to their own way of speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's very true. I like to describe because uh, I, I had to kind of conceptualize what is a good translation also when I started the, the business and it's uh, what do you need to be able to do to master and to do good translation. So it's like a, a pyramid with three level. You know, first thing is that you need to master the language. Okay basic. Uh, second one is you need to master the technical language. And if you are talking about finance, you know, you're not going to translate in the same way if you are translating an annual report following the IFRS terminology, or if you are in uh, equity research, or if you're in the asset management industry, uh, even within the asset management industry between a fund, fact, a fund prospectus or a fund fact sheet, that's not the same translation. Uh, macro research is yet a different type of stuff. Corporate action, it's a different type of language and so on and so on. So at the second level, you need to be able to master and understand the differences between those different types of um, technical field. And then the third level is what Claudia said, is what does the client want? How does the client translate, uh, you know, global head of fixed income in French? It depends. And that's valid for, you know, procedures, products, plenty of elements that are very specific to a uh, to each client uh, on that aspect. So it's true that it's, uh, it's something which is very, very uh, uh, peculiar uh, on that. But I do think that as translators, we have a role to play as well as in, in advising our clients in a bit of standardizing, you know, trying to use consistent language at least. They may make a choice, but we're trying to instill in them. It's like, I can use that, but I can't use it all the, all the way through because there's certain contexts where that term won't fit. And there's always this sort of negotiation that you have with the client to make sure that they're clear on what they're getting so that they're getting a good final product. And that's one of our duties as a translator is to be really rigorous about consistency in terminology and making sure that we're clear on the technical terms that our clients need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are basics of plain language communication. I mean, that if you want to be understood by anyone, you have to make sure that you use something that everyone understands. But I mean, sometimes companies don't want everybody to understand everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's true. So that coming back to the 
to the in-house the in-house translation it's starting from there that i got the idea of launching lingua custodia you see that's when i saw that uh, my team was spending 10 percent of their time in uh, in translation particularly you know for those urgent translation you know you just have one page to translate no more one page it's very technical and because there are not enough very specialized freelance translators in finance they are already busy and they're not going to drop their pen to translate one page to do in two hours so those who will do that will not be the best ones if you see what i mean so mm -hmm. therefore you will have to redo it in-house so in the end finance professionals they prefer to do it themselves because usually they speak english on top of their own language so and because it's very those are very international companies that's how it does work so when we're talking, uh, Claudia mentioned the in-house translation teams where it's translators within banks. So that does indeed, it's a way of performing finance translation. And there's also a huge part of the translations that are performed by finance professionals themselves, even if they hate doing it, but there's no other choice. You know, you receive, a, a, you have to answer a, a, a request for proposal. Uh, you know, it's uh, 100 pages in Italian, you translate it in English, send it to a headquarter, then it's 300 pages, comes back, you have two days to put it back into it in Italian. What does the sales guy do? You know, he speaks English, he speaks Italian, he's got the choice. Either I send it to a translation agency who's going to take the time, then send it to a freelance translator, it comes back. Then he's got only a few hours to put his added value as a sales guy, or he may end up doing it a bit himself. And uh, that really depends. All cases different. All cases are different. Then you, are, of course, you have cases where there's no in-house resources for the language, those type of things where you need to externalize. But um, it's a very mixed situation. We have a lot of clients to whom um, we sell different type of services, including pure raw machine translation that they will post edit themselves and finance professionals will post edit some others where it's in-house uh, financial translators who will post edit and for some others they want us to work with people like james so that james does the correct the output of a machine uh, knowing again also that the machine does not work for everything we talked a lot about the technical text and all those type of things have to know that there is also poetry in finance and for that the machine does not work and then you need much more input of the freelance translators in, in those, particularly for those aspects. The hardest thing for which probably a machine will never be able to do a job is in marketing brochures in finance, the title. Titles are can never be translated by a machine. Mm. Let's just step back quickly. Uh, you talked about terminology and I think there's there's two sides to it. First of all, James, how do you stay up to date on the terminology of you know financial translation? But then also, you know, how is it handled these days by clients? Are there terminology management systems being used? What's the process with, you know, keeping your terminology consistent? I tend to stay, stay abreast by reading financial press. That's my main source of, and I read, I read a lot in English. I don't necessarily keep close tabs on a lot of French press, but I do keep tabs on, on English because I'm writing in English. Mm -hmm. But uh, as far as terminology sources, because I'm using WordB, my clients actually have terminology resources integrated into the jobs already. And those terminology resources often tie back to other projects where I might need to look for something that, let's say I took on a new project for a new client within WordB, but I know that another client had used a similar term. I can go back to the job in WordB and find that term. Or I think there's even a search function in the homepage in WordB that lets you search for terminology. Uh, maybe in the Labrador functionality, you have that 
Um, but there's, I haven't actually evolved many tools as far as terminology is concerned because each client is so terminology specific that I don't have an overall overarching terminology source outside of what I'm given within WordB. And only in, on rare occasions will I have to step outside of WordB and, and look for nuances that I can't get from the information I have in WordB. Mm. So. Here at Labrador, we uh, use a single glossary for each client and we update it at least once a year with a validation from our clients. So we send a list of uh, around 100 terms that we send to our clients every year uh, so that we are sure that we are using the right terminology because we talked about differences between clients in the same sector, but there's also changes from one year to another. I mean, sometimes it's because the manager has changed or just because the politics in the company has changed and they don't want to use that term anymore or because they have uh, been used to another thing. So even within the same domain and the same company, um, you have you still have changes from one year to another. So we update our glossaries every year. Mm-hmm. And, and on our side, so uh, when uh, we create machine translation engines, so we, we spend our time crawling the web for data very specific type of documents which we're going to collect, train engines with that. So that's how we stay also up to date with the new terms that may appear in finance, which is very innovative as a world, more innovative than we can think. Uh, And for uh, the customized engines that we may do for our clients, uh, there again, we also take all the data, all the text they produce, uh, either in the target language, because we can train an engine also with monolingual data, just taking the target language uh, as, a, as, as the training data, or if they have bilingual data, we will take that and retrain and retrain the engines, which will be more and more adapted to what they want to do. And uh, just to, to jump on the staying informed part of the question to um, Claudia, you mentioned the ESF and the, the XPRL, which is a, another interesting topic maybe. So how, how do you stay on top of all the regulations and changes in the in, in, in things that you need to comply with? Like that sort of like high level stuff, how do, how do you stay up to Well, we, have, we are very lucky to be in a group. So Labrador is specialized in all regulated information and we have an advisory department. So they are always uh, they are even part of the discussions within the institutions, the, uh, the financial institutions here in France. And so they are part of the discussions every time there's a new standard to do and things like that. So we have regular trainings in-house uh, about those. And we also provide uh, advisory to our clients and yeah, conferences, uh, a blog and so on. Interesting. That's great that you're part of the discussions too, because I, I was also wondering about that, if like how, how some of these decisions come about and how, how the industry participates in that. Well, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I'm happy to tell you what I know. Uh, but if you wish, I can ask to one of our experts in advisory to participate to another one of your conferences. Yes, that would be great. So these, you know, all these regulations and, and compliance issues even, how do they affect the, well, what am I trying to say? Um, obviously, you have to stay on top of them. And do you, you know, the translators you work with, whether they're in-house or, well, I guess if they're in-house, they're, they're trained, right? The external ones. How do you mitigate the risk that, you know, anything might not be compliant? Compliant to regulations, you say? Yes. Well, that's the responsibility of the person that actually drafts the document. What we have to make sure of is that our translation is exactly what the original says. 
But if the original is not compliant, of course we can, like if we see something very big, uh, we can say that this or this should be checked. Mm -hmm. But in translation, you cannot like say, this is not compliant and I'm going to change it. Mm. Right. Uh, aren't there some terms though that are like uh, in some countries like in Switzerland maybe where they have like uh, like specific terms that need to be translated in a specific way I thought that was the case I, maybe, I didn't understand I your know. question sorry uh, like I thought that in in some countries um, they have like actual regulations about which terms have to be used for certain types of, of things like in countries that are multilingual maybe James can tell us more but uh, as far as I know um yeah there of course in standards like like yeah ESF and ES, EFRS and so on you do have uh, terminology that is that cannot be changed mm -hmm. but i'm not aware of anything concerning switzerland i'm not uh, aware of it i can't say that i've almost all of the work i've done has been based here in france uh mm -hmm. and i've never done any work that was based in switzerland as far as i know if i have it's been via france and i haven't had any linguistic restrictions made i haven't been made aware of any linguistic rest okay. restrictions on terminology so after that you know as uh, claudia was saying it's always the the responsibility of the client in the end to make sure that their documents are compliant with the local regulation we are there to help them to do that as soon and as efficiently as possible but that's their ultimate responsibility to make sure that it's coherent with what uh, uh, needs to be produced after that uh, for us when it comes to the machine uh, the machine will just produce uh, a text as it has been learned from documents and data so we had uh, some issues in the past where we had a bit too much Swiss French data uh, in some documents that were tilting uh, the translation engine output to French Swiss where you may have difference like uh, you would not say uh, gestion d'actifs or asset management uh, in French you would say gestion de fortune to become automatically wealth management because everything is wealth in Switzerland so uh, the, so that's one aspect but if when it comes uh, to the human reviewed translations uh, there the, what the freelance translator does and I'm seen James doing that multiple times it's to flag when there are incoherencies within the text itself and that's where clients are very appreciative of that because we are basically reviewing that they do mistakes in their own original document um, be it terminology or even just plain logic sometimes that you, that you can see as well um, yeah. mm -hmm. Olivia, you were uh, beforehand. You were talking about um, how oftentimes you will, you know, deliver the machine translation work, and then the the teams will just do the post editing, like the sales team or whoever, you know, gets the document will just do the post editing. Um, or like, do you see that the the best professionals, since it's so difficult getting getting good talent in this industry, are they willing also to do post editing work? Um, or maybe James, that's a question for you even. Or would that strictly go to you know people not in the translation industry? That's a very good question, and that's also something where we have seen an evolution, uh, because again, when we started the business and we were looking for also in order to provide a human review translation, uh, we were looking for you know specialized freelance translators who would accept to correct the output of a machine. Uh, first reaction was uh, no way uh, never in my life I will do this type of thing you know this is uh, an insult uh, for me to do this type of thing and um, uh, which again for me as kind of naive or non-professional translator was hard to understand because I was therefore you know when I was testing my engine I was translating myself some very you know 
technical long documents and I was quite happy to have a first proposal from the machine to go much quicker uh, on this. And the way we've done this, in fact, because it took us a time to build a, a network of people, of post-editor, uh, is that uh, we, we have involved uh, and including them in the um, evaluation of the translation engine. You know, when you create the translation engine, when you roll it out, you need to assess its quality. You know, it's all kind of, it works with deep learning. So you may have bad surprises sometimes if your data has been corrupted in some way and you did not pick it up or it did not work in the cleaning of data, something went wrong because data is very complicated to properly collect, uh, align, clean and classify. So what we do is that we, when we roll out an engine, we do a blind test with different type of engines and we ask people in the translation industry who are specialized in finance to assess the output. Um, and then some of them and more and more, more and more of them. So that made them realize that, you know, machine translation for those type of text actually, uh, does, does work, uh, and does help. And uh, then when we realize that, and when uh, we tell the man, you see there is a very di much difference between, you know, the kind of generic engines that exist uh, freely on the market uh, and very specialized engines. And they could see clearly that there was this difference. And you say, you see, when we, we do not pretend that one machine translation engine can translate everything, we do not pretend it can translate poetry, but for some type of text, we believe it works. And look how, what, what the output is. We have a lot of text that, where we need a human review on that. Would you accept, therefore, uh, to work with us to correct the output of a machine to have a human review? And some of them spontaneously, who before were telling us, no way, I will never, I'm never going to do that, looked at that, participated to our engine evaluation, and then afterwards saying, well, you know, actually, it's not as bad as I thought. So I, I could consider indeed working on the, um, uh, on the post edition of this. And then after that, that's one point. But the first, that's what I would call the psychological aspect of things. And there's another aspect of things, which is the financial aspect. Uh, because what happened initially, uh, five, seven years ago, you had translation agencies who were kind of putting through their text in, uh, in uh, you know, the publicly available translation engines. And then we're going to their translators networks and say, hey, guys, it has already been translated, so we pay you. We don't pay you the same price per word because you just need to proofread. Okay, and that was terrible because they were losing money. The freelance translators by doing that, they had to rewrite everything. So in order to alleviate that, we systematically on our side pay them by the hour, not by word. So if there's a problem with our engine, you know that's our, you know, we share the risk of this. And so it's also a change in the way uh, we uh, compensate the post editors that uh, also make uh, this industry evolve and which allows us to work with very specialized translators who are doing post edition in the financial world. Mm -hmm. hmm. And uh, at Labrador, Claudia, um, how, how, are, how are your workflows right now in terms of neural machine translation? We do not use machine translation. What we use is only translation memories mm -hmm. uh, that we update as well as our glossaries. So mm -hmm. every year we update our, our translation memories with the validated version of the publications of the previous year. Mm -hmm. So that represents a lot of work, of man work. But mm -hmm. I was wondering, I, I maybe I can ask a question to Olivier if you are okay with that. Um, I tested a few um, machine translation engines and I think that there's some kind of bias in the machine translation that 
doesn't allow you to teach the machine which are the main resources um, or maybe it's just that they couldn't at the at the moment but i think for example if you have a publication from last year which for me uh, and for my clients would be the main reference the machine won't know if it finds something more similar to my new term or something more similar to my new uh, sentence or something that the machine already knows and thinks is more uh, important or more uh, correct and they will choose those past publications instead of the newest. Is there is there an, a, a solution now for that problem? You know, it, it all depends on how you train the engine that you are using. If you are uh, retraining the engine, it's, it's all a question of mathematics and statistics. I know we're talking about language, but that's pure math. Uh, so uh, basically, if you if you have a customized engine to translate annual reports in a certain type of sector, for example, with your data, so you will have trained the engine with all the past data, indeed. And then when the new publication from last year is made available and is finalized, what you can do is retrain the engine and you overweight last year's data, which allows you to tilt your engine towards the most recent version. It's just a question of having to build the engine that way and to retrain it that way. Okay. So you have to train the machine as if you were training a translator for each particular client so as if every client should have their own translation machine after that you have a question of um, business case for it to make it uh, for it to make sense that's why we develop our engines by document types very much on the investment on the investment finance side because like that we can retrain and make sure we're also at the last kind of level on, on, on each of those areas and then after that for some type of documents it's very client specific and we create customized engines for our clients yes when you see it all, it, it all depends on how uh, you, we do an analysis uh, of uh, lexical distance between different texts also to determine, uh, because that's very often also a question that our clients are asking us. Well, do, how many customized engines do I need for, uh, for me as a, as a, let's say, as an asset manager? And uh, so initially you think, well, at least you know that there are two very different sectors between the legal team and the marketing team. It's going to be two different ways of translating, but sometimes it goes further. Sometimes you're going to have a product team who's going to say, hey, we don't translate things at all in the same way as the reporting guys. So we don't want to share the same engine as them. So we want to have one which is going to be trained and with data overweighted with our style. It's all a question of how you how you develop that and how you tilt the engine. Doesn't it doesn't mean it's hugely complicated to do. It all depends also on the amount of data and so on after after that, particularly when it's retraining. The trick is indeed how you tune the translation engine and with what data. I, I do think your question about recency though, Claudia, was uh, it's very relevant because we 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 do um, talk with people. I think it was our last panel. Um, we were talking with uh, people from the games industry because that's a totally different industry, but also um, they they also use WordBe. And uh, most of the companies uh, on that panel, um, the the people just said, yeah, we have these gigantic translation memories, and we're pretty good with those. <laughs> You know, so it, I think if you're in a position maybe like Labrador is where you have like a massive amount of resources and uh, and like you said, a lot of the the reports and, and the things that you're translating are very similar year to year. I, I bet yeah. that translation memory, it can be pretty powerful. Well, we chose not to use that gigantic translation memory because they they are very, they get old very soon. 
as mm. I was saying, when when you have a change of manager or a change of whatever thing in a, in the company, it impacts the way they talk, the way they speak. So your source text is going to be different, but also the translation is going to be different. And sometimes an old translation memory pollutes your translation memory and confuses and confuses the translators. If you have like three or four different ways to translate more or less the same sentence with more or less the same similarity, they won't know which ones to choose. And they will spend hours saying, well, should I put a comma here or not? Because they used it in 2016, then they deleted it in 2017, and they added another, they added a, a whatever, a, a column or a semi-column in 2018. But I think that I should use a comma. So they will spend hours trying to figure out which one of those three or four versions of the same sentence is the right one. And they'll probably write a comment and ask. (laughs) And then the proofreader comes in and says, okay, they're not consistent here, 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 and here. So delete those commas, please. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) James is just nodding, sounds familiar, right? (laughs) Oh, yes. Okay, uh, we have a question from one of our listeners. Isabella asks, um, does Lingua Custodia create post-editing machine translation guidelines for each client? And if so, what are the most frequent error uh, error typologies used? So we do have uh, uh, indeed uh, specific post-editing guidelines for clients when the client is asking for a post-edition. Again, this is not the bulk of our business. Our core business is selling machine translations to our end clients, who are all financial institutions uh, or financial divisions of big groups. After that, when there are corrections, uh, what are the main corrections? It's very hard to, uh, to, uh, to answer that um, because uh, each engine will have some, uh, some specificities, uh, uh, which we will also learn <laughs> From the from a, an output and then see how we can correct that and the next time it won't appear anymore. So it's quite hard, you know. There's no there's not the kind of mistake systematically, uh, which is there. What I could say though, it's more on the true uh, the, the usual limitation of machine translation, which comes back to what I was saying earlier. Uh, you know, when you have the title of a document which refers to, which has local references in it, the machine can't translate that. You need someone with a culture who's going to kind of, it won't even be a translation, but you need to convert that somehow in something else. Where the machine translation may struggle as well, it's with um, sometimes new words uh, that may appear or new expressions, like in, a, for example, in micro-research documents uh, in France, when we started to talk about les gilets jaunes, uh, you know, for the, the kind of uh, the yellow vest movement of demonstration, uh, and then we were writing text saying, you know, the yellow vest are saying this or saying that, and the engine could not make head or tail of that because the yellow vest does not talk. Uh, so we thought machine was thinking there was a mistake in the input text and was trying to say something else. So that was not working. And then, but then after that, as you retrain the engine with the text where the, the machine discovers that the gilet jaune can talk, uh, then, you know, that gets, that gets corrected. So that's, that's the kind of most, the most difficult things for, for machine. Machine translation engines really, it's, it really depends on how you feed them, how you train them. So you can do a lot with them as long as they are very specialized and that you have well identified your lexical fields. 
where there are limitations is and it also can it can also learn a style uh, the style of certain people can also take that if you have a lot of data which is available for the training you can you can make it do also this type of thing after that the, the limitation will always be with um, uh yeah with with um the the kind of uh, you know uh, ambiguous very ambiguous sentences or cynical type of text which a human could feel that the machine will struggle to understand you know the machine does not like ambiguity and that's 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 the thing hmm. so we have a, another question a follow-on question here um Giannis asks uh could olivier please clarify the volume of words or segments required in order to retrain or fine-tune an existing mt engine and how long would that process take and uh to effectively retrain the engine that is so how, how, how much how much time and uh, and um, and content do you do you need? Okay, so that I, I would need to have a, a, a direct discussion with a person who has who has asked that question because there is a lot of uh, if 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 uh, and dependencies on this. Uh, it will depends on uh, you know what do we want to translate here? What type of document do we want to translate? Do we have a lot of uh, already data in house, our own uh, proprietary data? that will be very appropriate for that uh, because in that case the client would need much there would be a need for much less data to tune the engine you know if it's a, a language pair where we have nothing then we would need a lot of data to do that if it's on a, a type of uh, a document which is very uh, homogeneous there's a strong homogeneity uh, and therefore the client uh, the client version is slightly different there's not need for a huge amount of data either but if we're talking about more general type of text there you would need more so you see it's, it's very hard to answer this, this question like that so when we uh, get in discussions with new clients, we go into the detail of the type of text, we analyze the data, and, and then we, we come back and we say, okay, that's ideally what we would what we would want to do, uh, or what we want we would need to train to train an engine. And then again, it depends: is it bilingual data or monolingual data only, which is available because you need more monolingual data if you want to train the engine than if you have a lot of bilingual data. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I can't be more specific than that in a, in a short period of time. Oh, he yeah, says, okay, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I kind of thought that there was no specific, you know, amount of, of words or data that, you know, there's just not that specific answer, I guess. Um, okay, let's see if there's any other questions here. There, there are a lot of research and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, research and development uh, works being done on this. Uh, do we need, uh, and where actually, you know, our research team is assessing, you know, to train an engine from scratch in a new domain. Uh, do we need 20 million parallel sentences, 50 million, 80 million, and then we figure out that after a certain level, it doesn't change much. Uh, what is the minimum? Then it depends on the type of document. You say it all comes back to that. It's a research topic as such. Uh, then where we start to be have a very good ideas for practical cases where we already have clients, we have experiences in this, but we can can talk about that. And when we when do you decide that a machine is ready to go live? Okay, there are several things. So once you have collected all your data, cleaned it, and you train the engine with it, the training process of the engine at some stage, uh, it works by iteration, and it will tell you itself if it has stopped, if it if it's still learning, or if it starts to stop learning, and even it, it de-learns. 
that's when you stop that's when you stop the training process and then after that you move to the evaluation of the engine to check if it worked well or not coming back to the process i was mentioning before and that's where the proof of the pudding is in the eating you're going to have a quantitative assessment through different type of indicators and a human assessment on that both have to be consistent uh, and have to be satisfactory and we, we need to be significantly different uh, from what exists on the market in order to put a market uh, an engine into production be our way to work on this and sometimes it doesn't work because we realize there was something that went wrong we go back we correct the data we, we we retrain. That's how panel discussions work too. And there's a certain point where everyone is de-learning. Like after <laughs> it comes at, at, at like an hour and I don't know, 15 minutes tops, and then everyone's is, is, is full. Um, right. There's a, we have another question from Giannis here. Giannis asks, uh, how is terminology handled in MT engines? Does the machine understand terms? I'm asking this because we often have the case where the machine translates the same terms differently and arbitrarily. Uh, the machine uh, uh, does not do anything arbitrarily. Uh, it will do it because it has learned to do it according to some statistical rules. Uh, so that means that this has been seen in in the corpus, in the training corpus. It will never put, it will put uh, the same word can be translated in different ways depending on the sentence and on the context. That's why it's not always the same term that will appear. For neural machine translation engines, it is more difficult than in the past where we were in a one level machine learning process. Uh, it's more difficult to force, the, to respect a certain terminology for one word. Um, it's we can never be sure at 100 percent but one word will always be translated in the same way unless really it's always like that but it appears in the training corpus but it's never the case so that's uh, indeed uh, there, there, this is another research topic now to come back now you know we've moved to from statistical machine translation where we could force that but the sentences were very mechanical and all we, we all moved away from this approach for machine translation in 2016 2017 to neural machine translation where now we have much nicer sentences because sentences are translated in one bulk but it's therefore the, 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 the way of that is that you can't force the translation of certain words on that so but but there's no there's no arbitrary in that it's always coming back from the training coming back to a training data it's always been it has always seen it somewhere Yanis um, says, thanks again, I will shut up now. <laughs> no, no, Yanis, it's all right. <laughs> um, okay. So do we have any more questions from the audience or or do we have, are there any more questions that you would like to ask each other? James, are you coming to our inauguration of uh, our office next week? <laughs> I am indeed. Uh, ah, I'll great. be a little, I, I'll come coming after my class. So I may be a few minutes late, so. Great. Right. Well, I think we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't dissuade uh, if we have any listeners out there who are considering becoming a financial translator. We shouldn't dissuade them. Uh, no. You are all uh, very much needed in the industry. I think. Well, thank you, thank you very much for the for the questions and for the animation of uh, of this uh, of discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thank, yeah, you no, thank you guys so much for for coming on today. It was great having you. It was a great discussion. Um, and for our listeners, we'll, all of this has been recorded and we'll share the recording with you afterwards. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Yes. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. Bye everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the International Bus Podcast brought to you by WordBee. To learn more about our translation management system, check out our website at wordbee.com and be sure to subscribe to the podcast for release notifications. 
Until next time.